Is it a love of labor or a labor of love? I'll talk about the recent labor drafts with Steve Gardner from USA Today and Glenn Colton from the Colton and the Wolfman Show on Sirius XM next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 16th. It's show number 13 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Two Tout Tuesday edition for you with two great guests. First, we'll have our feature interview with Steve Gardner discussing the Labor NL and AL drafts, the annual Leviathan Fantasy Baseball Special, his boons and banes, and much more. And then we'll have our second feature interview with Glenn Colton, discussing his labor ale and NL drafts with his partner Rick Wolf, as well as the smart system for fantasy baseball and his boons and banes. It's another big two-tout Tuesday edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Good news for Kershaw and Sixto. Not so good news for Nate Pearson and Steven Strasburg. We gotta talk some baseball. The LA Dodgers announced that longtime ace Clayton Kershaw will start on opening day for the 11th time in his Hall of Fame career. The Dodgers, of course, had plenty of options, even if they wanted to look only at Cy Young winners. The team has fellow left-hander David Price coming back from last year's opt-out, and of course, in the offseason, they signed last year's National League Cy Young winner Trevor Bauer. Meanwhile, Miami starter Sixto Sanchez finally got into spring training action with one and two-thirds scoreless innings on Monday in Florida. Sanchez had been delayed, first by a problem with his visa, then by a false positive on a COVID-19 test. Well, he's behind, and because of the early season off days, the Marlins look likely to skip Sanchez's first two starts, but they do expect him to be in the rotation by mid-April. Not such great news for Steven Strasburg, however. He had to leave a start on Sunday in the third inning after his left calf started, and I quote here, grabbing. He told media that he's had some cramping issues in that calf and that he's been looked at by the team doctor and he's had an ultrasound. He also said he thought he could have pitched with the issue in a regular season game, but he and the team wanted to err on the side of caution. And poor Nate Pearson. He was just on his way back from a right groin strain earlier in camp but he aggravated the groin Tuesday while throwing a bullpen session. The team said they still think the injury is minor, but they're taking it a day at a time, and that doesn't bode well for Pearson bringing his 100-mile-an-hour heat onto the opening day roster. If he can't, right-hander Ross Stripling will probably take Pearson's spot in the rotation. Remember, Pearson also missed five weeks in August and September of the short season with a sore elbow. On we go to the first inning of this Two Tout Tuesday edition, our first expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today. Steve, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, how many leagues have you been drafting in so far this fantasy season? You know, I, I, at this point, I think I'm halfway through. Um, I, I've got 12 total leagues and I've done six already and I uh, still have my home leagues left to draft. They're usually the last ones. Um, and then Tout Wars is coming up. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like right at the midpoint. So I should be hitting my stride any day now. Which Tout uh, draft are you in? 
NL. NL talent. Just barely lost to Fred Zinke last year, so I have revenge on my mind. <laughs> uh, what themes or trends have you noticed amongst your drafts? Plus, of course, you're observing the draft situation on Twitter, and everybody's always posting their draft boards, and there's a lot of discussion. What have you noticed? Well, I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, number one, because we don't necessarily know how to process 2020 and, and the season with 60 games. You know, are the stats legit? Do we take them? How much weight do we give them? You know, and, and Baseball HQ and, and the forecaster, same sort of thing. You know, how, how much of, a, of an emphasis do we place on that small sample size when, you know, all of our lives we've been told, you know, don't overreact to small sample sizes. So I think that's one of the things um, we see. I think pitching is the most uncertain. And I think that uh, for the most part, we're seeing the ace pitchers pushed up higher and, and given a higher priority in drafts this year. And um, I think another thing is that there's just so much more depth in the National League than there is in the American League, both in hitting and pitching. So that kind of, you know, if you're in an only league, you have to react to that as well. How are you going to react to that? Uh, how would you react <laughs> if you were me? I'm in the American League, but you're in the National League only tout. Uh, how are you going to calibrate for those differences? Well, I just think you have to be aware of it, you know, especially if you're you're in an auction draft, then you have to be aware of what's going on at the room in the room. Um, and just just have a plan as best you can. I mean, I think there's some things you need to to address at the beginning of the draft if you're you know, developing your plan. You want to figure out what you're doing with saves and things like that. And I think that um, you know, that's one of the things you just, it's tough to say until you're in the room because, as we say so many times, every draft is different. They are indeed. And in the American League, because of the shortage in pitching, would you be inclined to push up the Jose Barrios's higher in value, or are you going to just adjust your plan entirely in a different way and just spend more money on hitting? I don't know. I mean, I think the three starting pitchers in the American League, you know, with Giolito, Garrett Cole, um, and Bieber, you know, those three guys, uh, you push them up maybe a little higher, and then... I don't know. I mean, if if Barrios is is like in that next tier with Lance Lynn and and those guys, um, if you need an ace, you feel like you need an ace. Yeah, you may push them up a little bit higher. Yeah, the question for me is, do I need an ace as badly as that I'm going to have to pay an extra five dollars to get the stats from Jose Barrios right. or Lance Lynn? Uh, to me, that's the key question. Maybe in the whole draft. Exactly. Exactly. And because that's where. You know that's that's where it starts. You know, at least with with those starting pitching, you know, those starting pitchers, it's um, you've got to have a base somewhere. You've got to get those pitching numbers, and pitching counts, you know, for fifty percent of the scoring categories. So you have you definitely have to have a plan. You have to have a plan too to get saves, and uh, and I think that's one of the things going in maybe more than than before when you can just sort of wing it <laughs> a little bit easier. I, I think you do need a plan. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, you always need a plan. My my uh, conundrum is what what is that plan going to look like? Because I've had the inkling to maybe take my budget and steer it quite a bit more towards hitting, because I think the lack of 
quality starting pitching in the American League only context, I mean, the lack of quality starting pitching is going to compress the ERA and whip categories so that you don't need to have outstanding pitching to be relatively competitive. And if you've steered maybe 15 or 20 bidding dollars away from uh, pitching and into hitting, you could maybe dominate the hitting categories and just scrub along in those, in the pitching ratio categories at least, and manage to put together a winning total. Yeah, and I think you may not be the only person thinking the same sort of things, too, because uh, I think we saw a little bit of more inflation on the hitting side in in AL labor, uh, just because people were seeing those same trends. And with not as many safe starting pitchers, um, it's a lot easier to say, oh, I'll just get another one later, maybe for less, and, and, and shift that money to hitting. And, of course, because of the, the imbalances between – fantasy baseball rostering rules and the reality of how rosters are built in the, in Major League Baseball, we know that there's going to be very, very few hitters left at the end of a National or American League only tout wars type of draft, and you only have the four reserves. So if you have to replace a hitter, it's going to be very, very tough until the minor league guys start getting called up. Whereas if you roster a bunch of pitchers who are, yeah, you know, sort of meh guys, might work, might not work there's still going to be a fairly large pool of available replacements, which again, to me, suggests that maybe this is a year to reallocate some spending resources in the draft structure more towards hitting stats than towards pitching stats. Indeed, and Tout Wars does help too with that swingman position to where, you know, if you do have a bunch of injuries on one side or the other, you can at least have that extra guy on your hitting side or on the pitching side. How about adding value to multi-position eligible guys? Uh, it's it's always something we do, but it tends to be in the, I'll, I'll throw an extra buck or two onto a guy's value, the, the value of those stats versus a single position guy. But I wonder if maybe this is going to be one of those years when those stats have to be uh, given an even higher premium. Well, it's possible. And, you know, with only 60 games, um, it doesn't seem like it just at first glance uh, that there are fewer multi-position players this year. But um, you would think with only 60 games, um, it may be a little more difficult for players to have that multi-position eligibility. I'm interested, too, in guys that are switching positions that don't have, you know, uh, eligibility somewhere that are going to get it in season. I think that's also something to keep an eye on. Yeah, that's right. A lot of players are going to get that second position, depending on your league rules, within the first five or six games of the year, which gives you that added flexibility. You need to be aware of that. Plus, you need to be aware of how is your league managing the 60-game season as far as eligibility for this year. It's all over the map. It is. And um, we we had that uh, come up in the, the AL labor draft because we used in labor 10 games for minimum eligibility. Other places like the NFBC was seven games. And uh, so Greg Ambrosius and Sean Childs had their cheat sheets all from the uh, NFBC that had seven game eligibility. And there was a little bit of discussion uh, where they brought up some guys that they were not uh, able to nominate um, because they thought that they were eligible at a certain position and they weren't. And that's you're going to have an awful lot of that to worry about with all of the uh, you know, DH only guys uh, eligible in the American League this year. 
Well, Steve, uh, of course, you're at USA Today. You've been there for quite a long time, and one of your big responsibilities as far as fantasy baseball goes is the Leviathan, as you guys like to call it, uh, the Fantasy Extra Baseball Special Edition coming out this week, I believe. Uh, who first started calling it the Leviathan? How'd that name come about? Uh, that was John Hunt, uh, the founder of Labor um, and my predecessor in this position with the uh, USA Today Sports Weekly, before that, Baseball Weekly. Uh, it was just, it was a huge, I mean, it's a lot larger in terms of number of pages and content dedicated to fantasy than it is today. And for that reason, it was something that, I mean, he had to do all of the player capsules, all of the pricing um, and, and collect all of the stats and everything. So you can imagine what a huge task that was for one person. So it, it got to be to where he would, he would laugh at how much work it took and just started calling it the Leviathan. And uh, it sort of, I, I thought it caught on. And so now that's how I've referred to it. And I think a lot of people who were uh, familiar with it, have seen it for all these years, uh, kind of, kind of uh, fall in line as well. Yeah, I think it's, I've heard it referred to as that for many years now, and I, I don't know how widespread it is in the general readership community, but certainly in the fantasy baseball community, that's what everybody seems to call it. I always wondered if it had something to do with if kind of if you don't read it, your season is going to be nasty, brutish, and short, but uh, <laughs> it's good to know that the uh, actual cause was something more prosaic. How, how long has USA Today been publishing this fantasy baseball special? Well, the first one came out with the first labor drafts in 1994. So we're now in year 28, if my math is correct, which is uh, is pretty good considering the uh, the state of the print industry these days. We're we're still going strong. How has it changed over time, especially during your tenure? Well, I, I think the the main thing is that we've added um, mixed leagues, a mixed auction league, and a mixed draft league. That's one of the things that has happened. Um, since I took over. Um, in terms of just the whole composition, it used to be, as I said, it used to be a lot, lot bigger. Um, but what we've done now is that we have a, a special fantasy preview issue for Sports Weekly that we publish at the beginning of spring training, which takes a lot of the heavy lifting off of this particular issue. You know, all of the, the player capsules and, and certainly thanks to Baseball HQ, the guys there, who provide us with you know stats from previous years and projections and and projected leaderboards and things like that? That's a huge part of that special issue, which comes out uh, in early March, late February. Um, and so this part, you know, at this time, the Leviathan is, is more of a, a quick update where I update my player rankings, um, things like that. Plus, we have the labor results. So it, it's it's changed to the point where it's not just one big fantasy issue now, but a big one at the beginning, and then this one right before the season starts, which we time to be right during, you know, prime fantasy draft period. And full disclosure for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, Baseball HQ is owned by Gannett, which is also the publisher of USA Today. So if it sounds like we're buttering each other's bread here, it's not intentional. I mean, I like what Steve does. I hope Steve likes what I do and what we do at Baseball HQ. So uh, it's it's honestly held opinion. We're not just uh, buttering each other's bread. As I said, uh, Steve, I used to be a newspaper man, as you know. I was in the radio business like you, uh, as you also know. And I'm wondering about the industry challenges in newspapering 
when you and your colleagues start putting together your fantasy baseball publications, the, the spring training one and the Leviathan now, how do you feel like you have to position a printed product in an ocean of online fantasy information options? It is, it is a challenge. And um, because of the time it takes and, you know, the feedback that we get um, is not something like you would get for an online draft guide or something where you can see the clicks and you can see people when they purchase it. You know, it's, it's kind of like a leap of faith that we have to make that, that people will be able to find this on the newsstands. And that's another, you know, that I think that's the biggest change or the biggest hurdle that we face is that because of print costs and everything, you don't have 20 different copies delivered to each corner drugstore and grocery store. And, you know, you don't have newsstands all over everywhere selling newspapers and, and print products. So we have to be careful. They're, they're the distribution, um, not to get too far into the weeds, but there aren't that many copies available out there in the wild. And, and that's one of the biggest complaints that I get from readers is I, I can't find it. I, I need to, you know, I need to get a copy. Where can I find it? And um, I think that's, the biggest thing, the biggest frustration for me is now it's, it's not everywhere um, and that people have to look a lot more carefully to find it. And um, so I think that's a, that's a huge change. And the other thing too, I mean, in terms of differentiating us from other publications, um, we know because we put out a, a fantasy magazine before too at USA Today, and those get dated pretty quickly. And this, I think, is one great advantage that we have of being able to put out a, a print product is that we just finished it on Monday night and it comes out on Wednesday. So you've got pretty much everything that's happened to that point in the, uh, in the preseason, signings, injuries, everything taken into consideration. And um, I think that's where you know, we still have something that people like to, uh, to purchase, to read, and to use. Well, when you mentioned newsstands, uh, back in the day uh, when I lived in, in Regina, Saskatchewan, a small city in the uh, Canadian West, and uh, USA Today was just making inroads into Canada at that time, especially the smaller centers. Vancouver, Toronto always had it, but uh, where I lived, they didn't. And the only place you could get USA Today and the Leviathan was at the newsstand at one hotel, the downtown businessman's hotel in Regina. And one year, the I knew the Leviathan was coming out and I went in and I bought all of them. So my, so my league mates couldn't, uh, couldn't avail themselves of it. They all went in there to get it. And they said, Oh, sorry, sold out. And they're like, what sold out? I, it's only an hour since it came in. <laughs> yeah, some guy came in and bought them all. <laughs> uh, I didn't win my league that year, but uh, I thought I it was a pretty good year. <laughs> no, I didn't, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was, uh, it was worth trying. Has there been any suggestion that a big, huge product like the Leviathan be moved online, perhaps as a paying product, or, it, or is the concern that there then you're just another another person or another outfit doing that kind of thing at the same time as everybody else? It's possible. Um, I think one of the things uh, USA Today has generally for you know for the entire time its online presence has been in existence has been a free product. So I know as, as all of the uh, electronic media now, you've got to have some way to stay financially uh, solvent. And so I think as we move toward possible things available for uh, you know for an extra charge or whatever, that that's that has to be one of the things. It's one of the things that we have that nobody else has. And um, 
I think it would be something that you know people would rather pay a little bit online to get all that information than have to go to however many stores and, and places to try and find a print copy. So um, uh, that that could well be in the works for all I know. But not this year. <laughs> you know, years ago, Ron Chandler and I at First Pitch Arizona were sitting around chewing the rag about how to make these kind of products pay. And I suggested to him, if you were if you had a website, one of the one of the subscriber options should be if you pay us some premium, we'll let you give us eleven email addresses of guys who can't get it meaning the other 11 guys in your league. I'm serious. I thought because, you know, Baseball HQ is, at the time was kind of a, one of a much smaller number of such sites, and everybody in my league got in on it eventually. I was the first one in my league. But good news travels fast, you know, and pretty soon everybody had it, and there goes your information right. advantage. I thought, you know what, if Baseball HQ at the time I first subscribed had said, you can bar 11 other guys from subscribing – <laughs> I might have I might have taken them up on it depending on the price. I'm not going to spend you know 11 other subscriptions just to keep these guys out. But I don't know. I think it's worth thinking about. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ yeah. Radio, Patrick David with Steve Gardner from USA Today. And Steve, recently you wrote at the USA Today Sports website about your 30 most intriguing players of the baseball season. Uh, not fantasy specific, I guess, but interesting all the same for fantasy purposes. What makes a player intriguing? Well, I think it has to be something that um, that maybe we don't see on the surface, whether it's hidden upside, hidden fantasy value, or maybe sometimes just potential boom or bust um, situations for these guys. I think it's just something that, that you look at a team and you say, ah, that guy, that guy's the one that that could be really interesting. And that's that's kind of how I pick them out. I, I, I liken it to um, a, a college roommate of mine who used to be the guy who played the music at our parties. And um, everybody was always getting on him, you know, oh, what's a theme party? What's the theme party for tonight? And finally, he got to a point where he said, the theme for tonight is songs I like. And <laughs> I think I look at it that way with these intriguing players, you know, just players i like sometimes <laughs> songs i like i like that uh, let's look at the american <laughs> league first uh, steve what's intriguing to you about boston starter nathan Ivaldi? well i think number one is the the velocity the fastball velocity i mean he uh, touches an average of 98 miles an hour which uh, i think is third among all starting pitchers um in baseball last year uh he's got his his strikeout percentage up um, walks were way down last year. So you combine those two together and you've got a pitcher who, you know, maybe is not thought of as an ace certainly, but who has the skills that could propel him to that sort of status. So I, I think for me, Ivaldi is one of those guys who could take, you know, that, that next step up this season and, uh, he's not being drafted extremely high so far in, in drafts. Steve, I'm in a best ball, the Raz Slam draft. It's a points league, and I got sniped this morning. I just found out on Detroit starter Tariq Skubal, and uh, of course I like him, and I know why I like him. Why do you like him? Well, I think, again, a guy who throws hard, and, I, and that's, you know, that's huge these days in Major League Baseball, but he's a lefty, and a lefty who can throw 98, you don't see too many of them. So, um, I mean, his, his stats and skills were excellent in the minors, and one of the things that I that I look at 
is with this year where the baseball is supposed to be a little bit dejuiced and it's going to fly a little bit uh, shorter uh, distances than it did last year on fly balls. A guy that likes Scooble, um, who allowed a, a ton of home runs last year, that maybe the dejuice ball will help reduce his home run rate a little bit. And when you've got a guy who who does have a high strikeout rate, and that you know the home run rate comes down a bit. Um, that opens the door for a possible jump in performance. And I think he's one of those guys, he's young enough, uh, just doesn't have a whole lot of major league experience, but has enough to kind of know what he's doing. And I think he's got a shot at being in the Tigers rotation and a good ballpark. Um, He's just one of those guys that I might like to take a a late shot on. How certain are we that the ball has been dejuiced and will stay dejuiced during the season? Well, that's another assumption um, because what Major League Baseball says a lot of times is not exactly what actually happens. So we do have to take their pronouncements uh, with a grain of salt because I, I know I've seen some other signs um, and, and people have, have made comments on social media about, you know, maybe this does it because they're making a couple of different changes, you know, one with the core, some with the seams that they kind of counteract each other and it may not be. So it, it's, again, it's one of those, you kind of have to take a leap of faith uh, that they are actually going to uh, reduce the flight of the ball a little bit when they say they are. But um, I, I guess what it all boils down to Patrick is we're looking, especially with the short season from last year for any little kernel of data that we can find to hang our hat on and, you know, hoping that we're right. Um, and that the conclusions that we draw from it are correct as well. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's certainly not a uh, a given by any means. Kansas City shortstop Adalberto Mondesi, I'm sure you know, has been the subject of controversy in fantasy circles and in baseball circles because nobody agrees how much his great speed skill and some power potential are offset by his vast strikeout numbers. Steve, where do you stand on that question? Because he's one of your intriguing guys. Yes, and uh, I did get him in AL Labor, in fact, too. So I, I guess I'm all in on him, or at least uh, almost mostly in. Um, but the ceiling is what really excites me about him as a player. I mean, you saw over the last three, four weeks of last season when he was hitting the ball, uh, getting on base, hitting for power, and stealing all, all, all over the place pretty much every time he got on base. That is a game-changing type fantasy player. Um, he was the number one fantasy player over the past, over the final month of the season. Um, I think he hit like 350-something. So you see that kind of talent. And, you know, as Baseball HQ readers and, and listeners to this podcast know, you look for guys that might be one skill away from becoming great. And Mondesi, you know, if he can have... Uh, you know, just a slight reduction in that strikeout rate could be a, a fantastic player. Um, and, you know, just like get that on base percentage up a little bit and boom, you've got a guy that's, you know, that's a top five, top 10 fantasy player overall. Boy, that's a big if though. At, at uh, he's young. That is true. 
and, and we have to give a little extra consideration to the fact that he's uh, still a young player who may pick these things up, but boy, oh boy, it's a very high ceiling, but it's also a very low floor, including I've read, Steve, in some places where they say there's a chance he could be in the minors at some point during the season because his on-base percentage, what, 280 or something like that, is not really that helpful in a real baseball sense. Yeah, but the thing is, too, is he's he's very good defensively at shortstop, and Kansas City doesn't have really anybody else to put at shortstop defensively. And this is a team that made some um, nice acquisitions in the offseason, too, with the idea of getting better. You know, Not every major league team is, is concerned about getting better, it seems like, uh, over the course of the offseason. But when you add a Carlos Santana, you add an Andrew Benatendi, I mean, two guys who do have good on-base percentages – I don't know. Maybe I'm 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 putting on my rose-colored glasses a little bit, but maybe some of that paint patience rubs off on uh, on our friend Alberto. Maybe some mentoring too. Uh, Santana's a veteran, uh, apparently a good clubhouse guy. That kind of stuff. Well, maybe there's a path for it to rub off. I was looking at his stats. You know, uh, Mondesi's on-base percentage going into September of last year was around 180, and he finished at 294. So in that month, at least, he seemed to be figuring some stuff out. Yeah, he was he was the worst regular in fantasy baseball for the first month, but uh, completely turned that around the second month, and that's that's kind of the skills you know that that I'm hanging my hat on, and and hoping we see a lot more of this year. And speaking of speed without on-base skills, you also mentioned Texas outfielder Leotis Tavares. Uh, Texas has reportedly already scratched Tavares off the list of possible leadoff hitters because of his uh, struggles, shall we say, in on-base. But uh, how does that affect his interest level for you? Well, it certainly affects it a lot because it takes that, uh, you know, potential for being an impact player down a little bit if he's not getting as many at bats he's not getting on base and he's not getting as many stolen base uh, opportunities um i think one of the things that that cost him he went through a slump in spring training where he was like 0 for 12 and that kind of soured the team a little bit on on his ability to be in that top spot because as you know you've got to have that on base percentage at the top or your your offense is going to stagnate i don't know who else texas really has that's graded on base percentage anyway, when you've got to line up with, with uh, uh, Rugnetto, Dur and, and guys like that. So uh, they're not going to hit Joey Gallo lead off. Um, so maybe he does have a chance to work his way back up there and, uh, and get a chance to, to lead off at some point during the season because he's good defensively again. And uh, I don't know that Texas really has a better option in center field. So he'll play. The question is, you know, there's so much difference between a leadoff hitter and an eighth place hitter, just in terms of plate appearances. I've read it's something on the order of 20 lost plate appearances per slot down the order. And if that's the case, you're talking about, what, 160 plate appearances off the ledger, and that reduces the opportunities for stolen bases, but also just for other counting stats. Something to definitely keep an eye on when you're trying to figure out where you want to consider uh, Leody Tavares in drafts this year. Uh, let's move over to the National League. And you started with Dalton Varsho. I think this guy's very intriguing myself. He has a limited track record. He might not even have a roster spot in Arizona, but boy, talk about a great eligibility set. Catcher, outfielder. Gotta love that. No doubt. And I think he's got a lot better shot now of making the big league roster 
with Cole Calhoun being injured um, because he can play outfield. He played a lot of that um, last year in addition to catching. So he does have that dual eligibility. Um, and, you know, I don't think he's going to see a whole lot of time behind the plate, uh, especially with uh, early on if Calhoun is out. I, I think he's in line possibly to be the starting right fielder. So that's that's definitely a plus for him. And you look at the, the minor league numbers. I mean, he had a high batting average, high on base percentage in the minors. And, and that speed, you know, double digit speed, you can't get that anywhere else. Um, from the catcher eligible position. So he's, you know, for a guy that doesn't have a whole lot of a, a track record in the majors, he's going awfully high and is, and is very prized because catching is such a, you know, a vast wasteland of offensive numbers. I've been trying to get Tyler Molly in my drafts. I'm curious why you think I might be smarter than I think I am. <laughs> well, he's definitely intriguing. And I, I think Derek Johnson, the pitching coach for Cincinnati, did some amazing things last year and and granted it was in a short season but you look at you know all of those starters that they had you know from Trevor Bauer, Sonny Gray, Luis Castillo and Tyler Molly as well I mean all of them were just were were fantastic in terms of uh, a stat that I like to look at barrels per plate attempt uh, pl- per plate appearance percentage all four of those guys were in the top 20 of starting pitchers last year. So they're doing something to limit hard contact. And um, when you have a, a pitcher like Molly, who struck out over 11 batters per nine innings last year, um, had a swing strike rate of close to 15%. I mean, that's a guy, I mean, I think he gets overshadowed by those other three who are very highly thought of and very highly drafted Molly kind of, you know, gets pulled along and 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 doesn't get that kind of uh, attention. And I think for that reason, you're you're very smart to target him, uh, especially because he's not that expensive in drafts. Hey, everybody! Steve Gardner said I'm smart. Uh, there's ding, a lot ding, of ding. <laughs> there's a lot of disagreement in fantasy tout world about Denelson Lamette, and they're focusing, like the argument about uh, Adalberto Mondesi, on whether. Lamette's great skills are offset, in this case, by injury risk. Where do you stand on Lamette's injury risk as an intriguing player? Uh, well, I think this is the definition of the boom or bust potential, um, which makes him intriguing, because it seems like, uh, from what I understand, last year, the elbow was ready to go, and they shut him down just in the nick of time. And uh, while that's Wonderful that he didn't have to have off-season surgery, that he's trying to rehab it now you know, this spring. And apparently he's hitting you know, 95, 96 uh, miles per hour in sim games. He's not into to regular games just yet. That They're optimistic. Um, so the question is, you know, as, uh, as Clint Eastwood once famously said, you know, do you feel lucky? And uh, however lucky you feel is how much you can go all in on Denelson Lamette. I mean, you look at Masahiro Tanaka, I think, was the same sort of situation with his elbow. And everybody said, you know, it's just a matter of time before it blows out and he's got to have surgery. He never did as a member of the Yankees. So I, I guess the question, he didn't throw as hard as Lamette does. But um, the question is, you know, how do you do you want to roll the dice on a guy that could have ridiculous upside? I mean, last year, a whip of 0.86, you know, over 12 strikeouts per nine innings, you know, 35 percent K rate K percentage. 
um, that is an elite pitcher. And, um, you know, how much of that elite pitcher will we be able to see in 2021? Great question. I don't think anybody knows the answer. Well, I was willing to roll the dice myself for sure. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner from USA Today. And Steve, uh, you mentioned the labor drafts. This is something that John Hunt started at USA Today back in uh, the 90s, as you mentioned. Uh, your USA Today coverage of the drafts, you called the American League auction wacky. What was the source of this <laughs> wackiness? Well, uh, that, that's one of my favorite words, I think. Um, but uh, it certainly applied, I thought, to the AL draft this year. I mean, first of all, as we were talking about, um, just so much uncertainty heading into it um, in terms of pitching, in terms of the AL player pool. And it turned out that there were very few bargains. A, a guy who should know, uh, Greg Ambrosius, who was in the first labor draft and has been in every single one, um, when I asked them in their little post-draft surveys, Greg said this was the most aggressive that he has seen any draft in any of his 28 years being a part of labor. And um, what that meant is that there were so few bargains. Uh, and you had to be on your game. Um, you couldn't get uh, you couldn't relax for a second because we're doing it online. And when you're pushing the button instead of raising your hand to uh, to put in your bids, sometimes the computer takes it, sometimes somebody outbids you. Um, that, that made it a little bit wacky as well. And then, as, as I was saying before, too, the, the DH-only players. There, I think there are 10 legitimate players in the American League who are eligible only at a DH or utility. And when you have 12 teams, there's a lot of strategy and, and everything as to when you introduce those guys and nominate them and when you decide to take the plunge because, you know, they're all, uh, a, a lot of them are very, very good offensive players. And that's really not even allowing for Shohei Otani a, a rules conundrum all of his own. How does Labor treat Otani as far as the hit pitch split and how did he fare in the bidding? Interesting thing for Shohei Otani, um, you know, number one, how we treat him is he can be a pitcher, he can be a hitter, but he can only be one of them on any given week. So you have to decide on Monday when lineups are due, if you're going to have him in one of those, you know, which of those two slots. But the fact that he can move from one to the other does not lock you in. And I got Otani, in, in fact, for, for $15, which I thought was a, a really good buy. And again, one of those last instant clicks of the mouse. Um, I outbid Ian Khan. He, he had him at 14 and I went 15 and uh, and I got him. Uh, but one thing that Otani does is he doesn't necessarily lock you in to filling up your DH spot because you could move him to pitcher. And I went back and forth uh, judging from what my roster needed there at the end. I could take a DH guy. I uh, was very tempted to take Willie Calhoun when he was only a dollar. Um, but I ended up putting Otani in that hitting spot and, and going for extra pitchers. But um, he does give you a lot of flexibility, but you have to, you know, kind of roll the dice and be right more often than you're wrong every week. Steve, we talked earlier about the guys like Jose Barrios and where they needed to be valued in uh, their stats relative to the fact that there's so few top pitchers in the American League um, situation this year. We talked about that more or less in theory, but what actually happened in the labor draft? 
Well, we did see the top three guys. Uh, Bieber went for a dollar more than Cole, 41 and 40, and Lucas Giolito was 35. Um, but for those, you know, the second tier, I, th- I think what was really interesting is we only had um, five starting pitchers in the AL go in the 20s. So everybody else was teens, single digits. People didn't really take that extra jump and push those guys up that much. I think uh, Tyler Glass now was number four. He was at 27. Um, then Lance Lynn, Kenta Maeda, and Barrios in that $25, $26 range. So it, it was one of those where you had to pick really carefully which pitchers you were going to go with. And you know if you were going to try and have you know, maybe two really, really good starters or kind of spread the risk a little bit and uh, have three or four in that eight to ten dollar range. Interestingly, when you say spread the risk about starting pitchers, especially when you're spreading the risk amongst the the lesser uh, or perceived lesser pitchers in that regard, you might actually be increasing the risk because you're taking guys who are cheaper but riskier. Yeah, indeed. And and then we have some some people in that league, you know, Eno Saris knows an awful lot about pitching. You know, Jason Collette knows an awful lot about pitching. So I think how comfortable you are in being able to pick out those, you know, eight dollar pitchers who are going to be positive contributors um, versus guys who could, you know, tank your ratios or whatever. That's that may be where AL Labor is won and lost, to tell you the truth. We also touched on closers and that whole situation. There are very few of them anymore in either league. And it seems like in the American League, you have more situations with young managers who are willing to play the committee game, the matchups game. Uh, Minnesota is now looking more and more like that. Tampa's been like that for a while. We're seeing it in other places. How did that manifest in Labor American League as far as the willingness to pay top dollar for closer stats? Yeah, the um, there were three guys again with the role as Chapman, Liam Hendricks, and uh, Rizal Iglesias that went for 19 up, and the rest were uh, a level below that. And you look exactly what you were saying, Patrick. The managers, you know, Aaron Boone, Tony Larusa, and Joe Madden. You know, those guys because of what they have and because of the skill, the way that they manage, they're going to pretty much stick with one closer. But if you've got Rocco Baldelli, I found myself I, I didn't do it in in AL labor, but have done it uh, in other drafts this season, where I just try and get both of the closers if possible. You know, so Alex Colome and Taylor Rogers for the Twins, for instance. Um, you know, just get those two guys and lock it in. A lot of times, you know, if you're in an auction league, you might be able to get two closers or two co-bullpen committee members um, for less than you might get for a lockdown closer, like an Aroldis Chapman or a Josh Hader or somebody like that. So I I think uh, there are many, many ways to attack the closer situation, and um, you have to be open to to your strategy depending on, on what happens. I like that co-closer thing, especially in the Minnesota example, because I can see that uh, both of those guys might share the saves relatively equally. And if one of them should happen to get hurt, then the other guy's probably going to pick up 90% of the slack and you're going to get all those Minnesota saves one way or the other, which is obviously a help. I would be remiss, Steve, if I didn't mention your own personal contribution to the wackiness in the American League draft. Uh, (laughs) You punted batting average. Uh, something you said was a first for you in any industry league. Uh, sometimes punts happen because of a pre-made strategy, but sometimes it's just what happens at the table. What, why did you punt average? 
Well, again, you know, you're coming into this season really uncertain. I I wanted to look at some of the things that I felt like, you know, I most had a handle on. And one of the things that struck me about the AL player pool is that there are a lot of guys, you know, we talked about Mondesi before, but who have batting averages that are very low, but can hit for power um, and, and are very good at that. So in terms of seeing at each position, oh, there's a low average high power guy. There's a low average high steel guy, that sort of thing. It seemed like something that might be worth considering. And for uh, those folks last year, you know, when we had no baseball and Ron Chandler was one who kind of uh, got the ball rolling on these retro drafts. I don't know how many uh, or if you got a chance to do any of those last summer, Patrick, but um. When people were doing those and you know all the stats ahead of time, the game theory kind of uh, enters in to where it was really successful to punt a category, whether it's saves, whether it's stolen bases or, or what have you. The teams that were winning those retro drafts, to me, it seemed like were always punting a category or you know that would make them very successful. And so I wondered if we could take what we learned, you know, when there was no baseball into this season and see if it possibly can help out, um, you know, especially in a room as difficult as this with players who are as good as these are in AL labor. Maybe that's the kind of thing that you need to differentiate yourself. So I said, okay, I'm going to try and do this and see if it works. And I think for me, it worked the way that I thought it was going to. Um, whether it's successful, I guess, uh, that's the fun of, of playing out the whole season. It is. I wonder about, I've seen the punting strategy employed in years past. It's, it's been discussed lots, but it's usually about saves, uh, because it's such a particular category. And by punting saves, it really, you're not costing yourself too much anywhere else. If you want, you know, those low ratios, you can always get middle relievers or Lima guys as Ron Chandler famously, uh, dubbed them. It seems like batting average is a different kettle of fish. Was Were you worried about the spillover effect that guys with low batting averages have as far as not really having a, a lot of RBIs or as many as a similar sort of power player with 30 points more of batting average? Runs scored maybe an issue, perhaps stolen bases, depending on how on-base percentage pans out. Was there any concern about that spillover? There was, but um, you know, I I tried to get guys who could help me in those categories. Um, for instance, Adalberto Mondesi was kind of a must because of the steals that he gets. I mean, he could be a fifty steals guy, and you know, if it takes maybe a hundred steals to get into the top two or three in a, in a league like this, then I'm halfway there, and I think I'm in pretty good shape. Um, plus, he also hits for power. You know, Aaron Judge is another guy who was kind of a must for me because he hits for power. He gets on base. Um, he's going to hit, you know, I think in the number two spot for the Yankees. So he's going to score an awful lot of runs there. So when you look at it that way, uh, Carlos Santana, another guy, he walks a lot. You know, he's a drain in batting average leagues, but he does get on base and he does hit home runs. Um, he should hit in the middle of that Royals lineup, so he should drive in runs. Joey Gallo was another guy I targeted, but just couldn't fit into my uh, my pricing structure. But again, there are enough of those guys, I felt like, that I could make up enough ground and still be very competitive 
in run scored, RBIs, stolen bases, and everything other than batting average. It seems like with the decline in the general decline in batting averages throughout the league, that maybe the category itself will become compressed. That is, you won't need to have as high a batting average to separate yourself from the crowd. It'll be a little more luck-based because the top to bottom in that middle section will be less, there'll be less distance between the fifth guy in a five-man clump and the first guy in the five-man clump. And maybe from that point of view, the punting strategy has a little more rationale. Well, yeah, and there's always a chance that, you know, one of your guys does it, you know, maybe it's Modesty that, uh, again, boy, I'm, I'm hanging an awful lot on him, aren't I? But, um, you know, he, he doesn't, maybe he's not a complete anchor in that, and he does hit 250 or 260 or something like that. There, there are, are pathways to pick up two or three points in batting average, even if you're not trying to, just because of, as, as you said, you know, random variants that we see over the course of, a, of an entire season. So um, it seemed like if, if there was ever a year to try this uh, strategy out and, and punt batting average and go heavy on, on power and speed, that this would be the year to do it. You also run and draft in the National League Labor Draft. And the first thing I noticed about prices there was those stats of starting pitchers were higher in price because of the depth available in that uh, tier of pitching. Exactly. And I think we're not used to the, uh, the extreme depth that the national league has in starting pitching and in the, the post draft surveys from most of the, the participants, I, I saw several comments where, wow, you know, I bid this, you know, and I got this pitcher early, this starting pitcher early for $24 but man, if I'd waited until later, there were so many more really good bargains around the ten or eleven dollar range, and um, and I think that's where you know we see these guys, and we're we're accustomed to paying you know thirty dollars for a Max Scherzer, and Max Scherzer goes for twenty four, Clayton Kershaw goes for twenty two. Uh, I mean, those are some wonderful prices, but yet because of the depth, I mean, everybody has three, four, sometimes five really good starters in the NL. And um, and I think that's where, if you're in an NL-only league or getting ready for one of those drafts, keep that in mind because, you know, while you love to pay, uh, pay up for Jacob deGrom and he went for $40, the second most expensive pitcher after deGrom was Hugh Darvish and he was 28. That's, that's way too much uh, of a gap for the skills difference between those two. Yeah, and $12, it could be redirected to going from a middle-of-the-road sort of shortstop to up to uh, Lindor or somebody like that right at the top of the table. Uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting situation for sure, and it's going to be interesting to watch when the draft seasons continue. Uh, in what looks like it must have been a competitive bidding contest, Steve, you spent 35 bucks to get the stats of Christian Yelich coming off a poor season in 2020, a short season, I know. Why were you willing to bet on what is going to be a big rebound if he's going to pay off for you. Well, I, I think, you know, he's one of the, the elite players in the National League and the skills that made him that um, and made him an NL MVP just didn't go away overnight. I mean, you know, last year was not great for him. Uh, his strikeout rate went way up and he said that, you know, it was taking too many pitches. 
that plain and simple, got too deep into counts. And, you know, maybe that was from the, the lack of in-game video affected him as it had uh, seemed to for from several other players. But the reason I'm banking on him rebounding is you look at the track record. I mean, last season he hit left-handed pitchers pretty well, but against righties, he was horrible. You know, a 176 uh, slash line, uh, 176, 329, 344 against right-handed pitchers. Uh, that comes out to a 673 OPS. And the past two seasons before that had an OPS of over 1,000 against right-handed pitchers. So it's not like he forgot how to hit right-handed pitchers. I think that comes back, and it comes back in a big way. I mean, Milwaukee, good ballpark to hit in. Um, Yelich is a very good offensive player, maybe one of the best in the entire National League. So at just 35, when Acuna went for 41, Betts went for 40, Juan Soto for 41, I felt like that was a pretty good value for me. I have to ask, Lewis Brinson? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, where we had so much, you know, people that saved money on pitching and were transferring some of that to hitting, we had some people save up money for the end game, and the mid-tier outfielders were just bonkers in terms of the prices there. So I tried to stay out of that as best I could. Um, and when you get down to the dregs, there's there's not a whole lot left for those last dollar or two players. And uh, yeah, Lewis Brinson, I mean, he's got some speed, you know, has shown some power in the minors, um, certainly has not shown that in the majors. So it was one of those late little dart throws. And, you know, I, I backed him up in the reserve round. I got Magnus Sierra, um, who, you know, if Brinson doesn't make the roster, doesn't, uh, you know, isn't a fourth outfielder or starter or whatever, then maybe Sierra takes that spot. Um, so, yeah, you've got to make those trade-offs at the end of draft sometimes. You ended up spending $89 on pitching, which seems like a lot. We're used to sort of a 190-70 sort of split, but yours at 66-34 percentage-wise. How did that compare with the overall room? Well, it was it was interesting. Um, the, the, the dollar totals you know, ranged from, I think, uh, near 100 to uh, Lenny Melnick, I think, spent the least at $59 on his pitching staff. So... It was it was a little on the high side, but um, I still I think the guys that I got were certainly you know nice values to me, and I, I think the depth of starters that I got too was was worth the extra dollar or two that I spent that I didn't spend on hitting. Hopefully, I can make up some of that hitting um, over the course of the season with free agent pickups and the like. Speaking of those pitchers, you topped your rotation with Aaron Nola, who's about as solid as they come. But after that, Steven Strasburg, uh, always a bit of an injury risk there, and Ian Anderson going to be what Ron Chandler would call an experience risk. Uh, why were you willing to embrace risk in this fashion, and was it deliberate to, to have two different kinds of risk? With Strasburg, he's just a guy that, that I've always liked, and uh, when he's been healthy, He's been one of the best pitchers in baseball. And yes, I know it's a big if considering you know, he pitched what all five innings last year. But um, the, the carpal tunnel issue is is no longer a problem for him this spring. Of course, then he came in his last start and had a little issue with his calf. Hopefully that's not a big deal. Uh, he said he could have pitched with it had it been the regular season. 
So uh, hopefully the injury bug doesn't bite him again. Um, but still, I think for a number two starter, there's an awful lot of upside at the $16 that I got uh, got him for. And then Anderson, I just, I really uh, was impressed with what he was able to do last year, not only during the regular season, but also in the postseason. And, you know, we can't count those postseason stats. And a lot of times you put too much emphasis in postseason performances, you get bitten. But we didn't have that much of a sample size anyway last year. So I think it's a little bit more okay to lump the postseason in with the regular season. I mean, he he was outstanding his last time out this spring, struck out seven in three and a third innings. So uh, the Braves are going to be a very good team. They're good defensively. I think all the signs are, are pointing up for him. So I'll take that experience risk for Ian Anderson um, as my number three starter. Gene McCaffrey says we should count the playoff stats in all of our projection systems because not only did they happen in real baseball, but they happen in real tough baseball. They're amassed against the very top level of competition that's available in that particular league. And if a guy does well in playoffs, whether batting or pitching, it means that he was succeeding against the best that the league had to throw at them. And uh, I think that's an interesting thing to take into consideration. Uh, you you bought Brad Hand's stats for $12, so there's that anchor reliever, but you threw a couple of darts at a couple of closers in waiting, Tanner Rainey and Chris Martin. Why those two? Skills, in one word. I mean, both of them are fantastically skilled players. I, mean, I think, for one, Tanner Rainey is the heir apparent to Brad Hand, if anything should happen to him, in Washington. So uh, he made great strides last year uh, at 14.2 strikeouts per nine, um, and he cut his walks in half. That was the real problem with him two years ago, is that he was walking everybody uh, if he wasn't striking them out. He cut those walks down last year, looks much better. Um, so I think Tanner Rainey's got a, a, a great future in Washington. And with Martin, same sort of thing. High strikeout rate, above 10 strikeouts per nine, and doesn't walk anybody. Uh, I think he walked one and a half batters per nine innings last year. So you get that mix. Plus, you know, who knows if, if Will Smith is going to be the everyday closer uh, for, for the Atlanta Braves. Um, you've got him, you've got A.J. Minter. Both of those guys are left-handed. If you need a right-handed guy to come in, Chris Martin's got to be the guy. So, uh, you know, if Ryan Snitker wants to play the matchups or something in a save situation, Martin is is the logical choice there. So I think both of those guys have upside. And um, even if they aren't closing games, they're going to help me with the ratios. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner from USA Today. And Steve, I'd like to wrap up these talks with some boons and banes. These are players you think will help their fantasy teams or hurt them. Uh, we'll start with some boons, guys you think will provide value in the coming season. Let's start in the American League with a boon hitter. I, I like Ty France, and I think um, well, he, he seems to be a, a very uh, popular sleeper pick this year among uh, AL watchers. And, and I think you know for a guy that, that hit 399 uh, a couple years ago in the minors that has power, he's, he's definitely a guy I'd like to have. In the National League, who's a boon hitter? This is, this is one of those I think is a, is a bounce-back candidate. And that is Josh Bell in Washington. Um, maybe that's a little bit of a homer being a, here outside D.C. But um, you know, I look at him as, as somebody who hit 37 home runs two years ago and was just horrible last year. I, th I think he's a guy that could really explode this year for the National League. 
From your lips to God's ear, I've got him in a couple of uh, drafts. Uh, an American League boon pitcher, Steve. The A's have a lot of them. Um, and Sean Manaya is a guy I like to target. I think they'll higher ceiling even than, than Manaya is Jesus Lazardo. And, um, you know, a guy who throws hard, another lefty, good ballpark to pitch in. Um, Lazardo's a guy, I think he went for 16 in the AL uh, labor draft. I think he could be worth significantly more than that this year. And in the National League, who's a Boone pitcher? Again, probably a popular choice. And again, another left-hander. But um, Julio Urias, from what we saw last year in the in the playoffs, you know, we talk about performing under the lights. He was fantastic. What, four wins and a save in the uh, the clincher? I think this is the year he finally gets the innings and uh, shows us exactly what he can do. Steve Gardner's Boons, Ty France of Seattle, Josh Bell in Washington. Take your pick in Oakland, Sean Manaya or Jesus Lazardo and Julio Urias of the Dodgers. Let's move on to the Baines. Steve, players you think have a pretty good chance of disappointing their fantasy managers. Again, we'll start in the American League with a Bane hitter. I don't think he'll be bad. Um, but I've been dropping Alex Bregman down um, on my lists, and uh, I, I mean he was—he he still can do so many things. But I'm just worried about the the drop in 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 all of his stats across the board last year. Yes, it's a small sample, but something worries me a little bit about him. And, and the Astros aren't as good as they were last year. In the National League, how about a Bane hitter? It's. It's Tommy Pham. Um, you know, he, he's coming back from not only uh, hammock bone surgery, um, he had a stabbing in the, in the offseason, um, so he's not yet 100%. And, and I think the Padres have so many different ways they can go. Um, and I, I don't know. There's just something about Pham that is a little bit concerning. I can't really put my finger on it. But um, I, I don't have him in any drafts so far this year, and I don't know that I'm going to get him. Over to the mound again. Uh, how about an American League pitcher who could be a bane? <sighs> this one's this is tough because you know all those the morass of of American League mediocrity. Um, I worry about, and partly because I, I shouldn't say this because I drafted him in in AL labor. He's my top guy. But I worry about Zach Plesac because you know he was so good last year, but it was in so few starts that we don't really have a, an idea, a really good idea about how good he is or can be. Um, he missed some time, you know, because of the the COVID situation, and losing Francisco Lindor as your shortstop up the middle. Um, while Andres Jimenez is, is a pretty good defensive player in his own right, he's not Francisco Lindor. So I, I worry about uh, maybe having a little bit too much optimism for Zach Plesak. And a National League Bane pitcher? Chris Paddock worries me a little bit. Um, I, I know that uh, he has been, again, what am I, why am I worrying so much about uh, Padres players? Uh, they're going to be a really good team this year. But um, th the fact that uh, he didn't take that step forward last year um, in his sophomore season, uh, he, he talked a little bit more about, uh, you know, going to the the mechanics and going to drive line this year. So 
maybe there's there's uh, certainly improvement on the horizon. I just don't know. I think he's a little bit um, pushed up. I think people are a little too optimistic because they fell in love with him a couple of years ago. Um, so maybe I'm backing off a little bit more with him than I am uh, a lot of those National League pitchers. But there, you know, there's so many good ones that you can afford to pick and choose, I think. Steve Gardner's Baines, Alex Bregman of Houston, Tommy Pham of San Diego, Zach Plesak of Cleveland, and Chris Paddock also of San Diego. Steve, this has been great. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with Steve Gardner. Sure. You can check out my work, uh, USA Today Sports, uh, fantasy.usa today for all the uh, labor coverage and, and sports weekly columns. And you can follow me on Twitter also. I'm at Steve A. Gardner. Steve, this has been interesting, informative, and fun. Thanks very much for taking the time. I hope we get to talk to you again during the season. Thanks, Patrick. I enjoyed it myself and uh, look forward to chatting again. Steve Gardner writes at USA Today. Coming up, we have our second expert interview with Glenn Colton. Right now, though, it's time in the show, and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Keepers, analyst Brad Coleman continues his series of dynasty building blocks with a look at relief pitchers including two young pitchers in Cleveland. In Buyer's Guide columns, it's Gamble's Week. Stephen Nickrand looks at those risky hitters and starting pitchers, while Doug Dennis looks at the bullpens. And in Minor League's coverage, analyst Rob Gordon. That name sounds familiar. Rob Gordon looks at the top 2021 relief pitching prospects. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time. There's facts and flukes, playing time today and playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides, the market pulse, the big hurt, plus all that fantasy baseball research and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. When you put it all together, it's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview on this Two Tout Tuesday edition with Glenn Colton from the Colton and the Wolfman show on SiriusXM. He also writes for FantasyAlarm.com. Glenn Colton, welcome back to the show. It has been too long. Thanks for having me back on. Missed you last year, of course, at Tout Wars. We had to do the whole thing online with the attendant uh, difficulties, but also the attendant different aspects of it that made it interesting. I think we're going to be doing the same again this year. But one of these years, uh, we'll run into each other in person, I guess. Well, I'm sincerely hope that all of our fantasy baseball drafts in the uh, March and uh, April of 2022 are in person, where we can share some good laughs, talk baseball, and maybe even have a beverage. (laughs) How many leagues have you drafted so far this fantasy season? Well, not counting the best ball, we do a lot of best ball drafts uh, over Colton the Wolfman on rtsports.com, but not counting those, it's been three, the uh, FSGA 14-team uh, mix draft and the uh, what they're now calling salary cap drafts, uh, AL and NL for labor uh, a couple of weeks ago. Where you don't bid money on actual human beings, those, those drafts? You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm fully supportive of of not making anybody uncomfortable, but um, let's just say that we won't use the phrase ownership. We'll use the phrase rostering, and we'll use the phrase, uh, you know, um, salary cap instead of auction, and we'll do the best we can to make people comfortable. 
And uh, just so you know, during this discussion, I'm going to use the term buying player stats. Not buying the players, just buying the stats. So if anybody hears me use the word buying, that's what I'm buying. I'm not buying the player. I'm buying the the player's production, just like any uh, employer, I guess, in a roundabout way of thinking. So in the drafts that you've participated in, Glenn, and in the drafts that you've just been watching or reading about, what themes or trends have you noticed beyond the obvious starting pitching? Well, I mean, obviously the starting pitching thing is a huge deal, but also the 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 so few closers who are sure thing, um, you, you know, lockdown guys, the the Liam Hendricks, the uh, you know, Roldis Chapman, and the cost of those players has gone way up, whereas the cost of the you know closer who is not secure has gone way down, and it's something I'm not sure I fully understand. If you get a a Jake McGee. Um, you buy his stats for $4. He only has to close for a month to make it worthwhile. So why not take that? Why not sort of jump that up a little bit? Uh, I know why you're not going to pay 20 for his stats, but it seems like the value of the second tier closers has gone too far down. Buying opportunities anytime a price drops. Uh, have you decided to steer into a trend versus veering in another direction when these trends happen? Well, how do you usually respond? You know, interesting, um, we're big believers in scarcity, which I'm sure we'll talk about during the course of this pod, but um, to me, it's you have to set your limits. So we'll have a plan A and a plan B and say, all right, these relievers are very limited, the ones we can count on, but here's our ceiling. We're not going to go over it. And if it goes too far, we'll steer out of it. So we we plan on steering into it, but but we play chicken and we get out of the way before it's too late. Well, speaking of your plan, uh, you call it the SMART plan. You've been using it very successfully for a very long time, and every year you update it a little bit here and there. And recently at Sporting News, you wrote an update to your SMART system. SMART is an acronym. Uh, S is about scarcity. So this is a bone of contention in the expert community still. Some analysts say we shouldn't pay premiums for scarce positions or categories because there's always a way around it to balance. But your SMART system says we need to take scarcity into account. Why and how? Well, it's a couple of reasons. It doesn't mean pay uh, way above a player's statistical value just because of the position. It means that there is some premium because you have to think about what you're going to have to do during the course of the year to fill up a position in the, in the, um, you know, in the national league, for example, the, the number of reliable second baseman is so limited that if you roster an Aussie Albies and you just put him in there every day, a young player in a great lineup in a good park, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And at the end of the year, your second baseman is going to outproduce the other second baseman on the on your competitors' team. So I think there's a huge value not only in getting more stats from your second baseman, in my example, but also not having to shuffle in you know the free agent acquisition period every week to try to get you know, some productive second baseman. So that that's really the theory. And it's easier to find um, good producers at, at, at the more, t- uh, you know, stat-rich uh, positions. And that's our view. And, and it's worked well for us. Yes, it has. And I think the key thing that you mentioned there in economic terms is called opportunity cost. If you don't uh, roster the stats of a good second baseman, then the opportunity cost is you are forced by the rules to roster the stats of a lesser second baseman. And then the calculation you have to make is 
how much is the difference between second baseman A, the good one, and second baseman B, the not-so-good one, versus outfielder A, who's probably about the same price as your second baseman, but the next one down isn't quite so far away. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And opportunity cost is key, but also, especially when you're playing in an AL only or an NL only, if you have to go out there and find, um, you know, a, a, a good middle reliever, you have to go out there and find uh, a, a decent outfielder who will at least give you either home runs or steals. You're probably going to find them. If you have to go out and find a catcher or a middle infielder, I mean, there are times in tout wars, Patrick, you and I play in where, you know, you need a middle infielder and you do the search for middle infielder and it's, you know, it's, it's guys who are backups like Andrew Velasquez and, and Tyler Wade. And, and I'm not putting those guys down, but they're not going to put up big roto stats. No, they're not. Uh, speaking of catchers, I remember the last time we did draft live in Tout Wars, I think you and I got into a bidding war over Kevin Plowecki near the end of the draft. Yes, we did. <laughs> and we're kind of sniping at each other because I forget who got Kevin Plowecki in the end, but it didn't really help either. You Whoever did. it was. Uh, did I? You did. Oh, yeah. Well, it didn't help. Yes, you did. <laughs> the M in smart is for management. And the way I read it, it looks a lot like good old-fashioned self-discipline. Uh, what does management mean in the smart system? Well, it, it's two different things. It's managing your uh, draft or your salary cap draft, and it's managing during the season. You know, there's this whole thing about, oh, just go for value during the draft, just uh, take opportunity. There are players who are good enough to do that. Jason Gray doesn't play anymore, the late, great Laura Michaels. There are a few people who can do that, but most people, me included, can't. You have to have, in my mind, a plan and a realistic plan to say, okay, here's my realistic goals. X of my budget on this, Y of my budget on that, and then a plan B and a plan C. So you're not left scrambling to make snap decisions. You've studied for months. Why are you making snap decisions? You should know exactly which direction you're going to go if certain eventualities happen. That's managing your draft. And, and you know, the Wolfman is really good at also managing the categories. There's, I'm not a full believer in projections, but they're a useful tool. And you, you should have certain goals as to the number of home runs, steals, strikeouts your team is going to roster and try to hit those goals and manage that. Because then you know toward the end of a draft, well, I have limited resources and my biggest need is strikeouts. I'm going to move some, some resources to pitching to get those strikeouts. That's managing the draft. And managing during the year is getting ahead of some of your pickups. Take a look at what's going on. In a league like Tout Wars, where you're allowed to pick up minor leaguers uh, on the free agent budget, get them a week or two before they come up. Because once they come up, it's going to be a bidding frenzy. I remember Nate Lowe went for $400 a couple of years ago in Fab and Tout Wars. And um, and the other thing is watch the watch who's pitching the eighth innings who's pitching in the high leverage situations for teams with bad uh, or unreliable closers and get those guys a couple of weeks early um, instead of, again, getting into the bidding frenzy over the latest, um, you know, the latest closer du jour. Those are the types of things where you have to really aggressively manage. And don't just look at the two-star pitchers next week. Everybody's doing that. Pick up the two-star pitcher a week before that. Um, so, you you know, everyone goes to roster that guy and you realize, up. Oh, Patrick already has him. Uh, when you mentioned the Wolfman, uh, of course, you're talking about Rick Wolf, your longtime partner, and a recent inductee into the Fantasy Sports Hall of Fame, a well-deserved honor for Rick Wolf as well. Now, Glenn, when you talk about budgeting and being 
managing towards a budget, do you guys, when you set your budget, is it, uh, do you slot in dollars per slot or do you slot in dollars per position per slot? How do you organize the money once you've determined the hit pitch split, which we'll talk about in a minute? It's sort of a, a grouping. So what we'll say is we want to get, um, just to make something up, uh, two corners at, I'm making up the numbers, at $50. And it and then we'll have certain targets and it'll be sort of a, maybe it'll be a 30 and a 20 if the value is there, maybe it'll be a 35 and 15, uh, you know, maybe to be, uh, you know, uh, move a little bit of money to, to, to another position if we get values, but it's not so much one player. It's too hard to do on one player. So we tend to do it in groupings, three outfielders at 75, for example, which might be 45 and 20 and, you know, 10. But and we sort of look at okay, if we can get Trout, we'll do 45, 20, and 10. If if we can't, then we'll go uh, a little more balanced. But we tend to do it in groupings so that we're not wedded to one player, which is very dangerous. And when you mentioned the idea in season of re of getting those rising players or two start pitchers, I remember in the 2019 Tout Wars, uh, Rob Leibowitz rostered Jordan Alvarez uh, just a week before he came up uh, per your plan, and uh, he won the league because of it. Uh, Jordan Alvarez was, of course, a, a huge benefit to him, and I believe his bid was $9 or something like that. That's not a bad get for 100 RBIs or whatever it was. Jordan Alvarez. It was uh, well done. Yes, it was. Uh, the A in SMART stands for anchor. What does that mean? That's one starting pitcher that you can basically count on to provide you quality innings, strikeouts, good ratios that you can build the rest of your staff around. It doesn't necessarily mean you need the number one starter available in your league. It just means you need someone that you can rely on unless the talent pool is so thin it doesn't exist. Give us an example. At Baseball HQ, we call this the Santana plan. It's named after Johan Santana when he at the time was just that kind of pitcher. Uh, obviously, a Garrett Cole fits the bill, but a lot of people aren't willing to pay that kind of freight. Uh, what about uh, some guys maybe a little down the line that you think would qualify in your anchor position? Yeah, I think almost all of them are in the National League. Um, obviously, Colin Bieber would, and, and Giolito would count, but I think that may be it, almost maybe one or two more in the American League. In the National League, they're, they're legion. The, the Castillos, the Buellers, the Nolas, um, you know, there's a lot more. It, none of Castillo, Bueller, or Nola are the number one pitcher in the National League, but they're all guys you can count on to provide innings, to provide strikeouts, and provide ratios, and then you can build your staff around that. That's what we did, you know, with with Castillo, Luis Castillo, in the Labor NL uh, draft that we did a couple of weeks ago. What does someone do in an American League only format where the pitching just isn't as good across the board? Everybody's noticed this. Uh, the anchors seem to start and end with Garrett Cole, and then do you start going down and looking at a Jose Barrios, guys like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been convinced that Shane Bieber is, is pretty close uh, to Garrett Cole. I was originally thinking, oh, he only pitched against the central teams in 2020 in that strange season. But the truth is he was great in 19 with 259 Ks. So I believe he's up there. And I think Giolito is up there as well. But after that, to me, Barrios is pretty much the only other one. And you'll notice that he uh, is on Team Colton and the Wolfman in Labor AL. The R stands for relievers. You touched on that a moment ago about uh, the 
validity of chasing after a, a top reliever, a, a confirmed reliever, while maintaining the flexibility to go get somebody a lower down at a better value if that's what it takes. But how is the smart system adjusting? How has the smart system adjusted over the last few seasons with the changes in bullpen management in Major League Baseball as more and more teams, more and more managers are reducing their reliance on closers in favor of matchups, in favor of committees, those kinds of things have really had a profound effect on how we think of closers because to a greater and greater extent, they are ceasing to exist in a lot of organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're willing to pay a little bit more for the lockdown uh, guys whose uh, managers are committed to keeping them in the ninth inning. I mean, look at the Dodgers, for example. I don't think Kenley Jansen at this stage of his career is the best arm in that pen. Uh, I don't know if it's Trinan or Gratterall, um, you know, or even Kniebel. Uh, there's so many arms out there, or Victor Gonzalez. But come ninth inning, come the end of the season, 30 saves are going to be in Kenley Jansen's column. So if we're still going to count saves as one of our five pitching columns, those guys become more valuable. And so the key is looking at, you know, the very metric-driven um, fantasy manager these days is looking at metrics more than results. And at the end of the day, I know Aroldis Chapman's uh, velo is down, though it's still great. Uh, and I understand that maybe, you know, certain guys have bit better numbers, but Chapman's going to get the saves because that's what Aaron Boone is going to do. And Kelly Jansen is going to get the saves because that's what Dave Roberts is going to do. And we're willing to pay a little bit more for that um, again, we'll set our limits, but we're willing to pay more for that than just the advanced metrics would, would dictate. The smart system is flexible enough to advise the user of the system to speculate on those maybe next guy closers, next guys in line where the situation is shaky. Uh, you mentioned Jake McGee, who I think is probably going to start the year as the closer in San Francisco, which might bump his price up. You mentioned the situation in Los Angeles. Give us a couple of other uh, ideas of where someone might look for that shaky the shaky uh, bullpen and who's next in line should the closer stumble. Well, I mean, uh, look in look in Miami, for example. Uh, I like Anthony Bass. He got a save in the last day of the year in uh, 2019 to win us a back to back labor title. Uh, he's always been a solid sort of guy to have in your bullpen, but he's not going to remind anybody of a role as Chapman or Josh Hader. So. He probably starts the year, but Yimmy Garcia probably is the better arm. So that's a place where you can speculate relatively inexpensively. Um, you know, I like Scott Barlow behind Greg Holland. I think Holland's pretty good, actually. But here's the thing about Holland. Either he's going to be bad, in which case he loses the job, or he's going to be good, and he's going to be gone in July. So either way, there's an opportunity for a good arm. And I like Barlow better than Stalmont, actually. That's another example. Um and, you know, everybody in Oakland thinks Trevor Rosenthal is back 100% based on a couple of months. There's reason to be optimistic about Trevor Rosenthal, but again, he's a guy who uh, has injury history. And there's some pretty good arms back there. And one I like is uh, J.B. Wendelkin more than uh, the 34-year-old Jake Diekman. And once we've got through the SMART part, the smart system also has what you call the rules of engagement. Uh, and what are they? We originally started with the acronym to take advantage of sort of acronym fever back when uh, HQ founder Ron Chandler started with the Lima plan, low investment mound aces. It was a very successful plan. So we figured, all right, maybe there's uh, something to acronyms as well. No, nobody claims to be as, uh, as brilliant as the bearded one himself. I certainly don't. But 
um, after the sort of five main principles, we came up with other rules and we're playing off our, uh, our radio theme of, um, from Top Gun, um, you know, never, ever leave your wingman and these types of things we say to each other in the auctions, Rick and myself. Um, so we came up with these rules of engagement, you know, never violate the rules of engagement. Some of them are, um, don't pay full value for a player who just signed a big money contract in a new home. Um, they're trying to, they press at the beginning of the season to justify their contract. They're living in a new city. They have new coworkers, new ballpark, new coaches. It's very hard to hit the ground hundred percent running. So if you're going to invest uh, 30 or 40 of your fantasy dollars in a player, they can't have a bad month or you're not going to get value. So we say, don't invest in that first year. There's opportunity in the second year. Um, take a look for guys who are, you know, overhyped at the beginning and now the price has come down. Uh, you know, ever since uh, Victor's uh, Juan Soto and, and Mike Trout, uh, you expect these kids at 21, 22 to be superstars. And when they're not, all of a sudden they're 24 and the value comes down. And that's where you can really find uh, value. Look for players who are, you know, 24 to 26 years old who still have only about a thousand plate appearances and you're going to find value there. Because people are, um, you know, what have you done for me lately? Uh, we'll talk probably during this podcast about, during this, you know, segment about Glaber Torres. Remember, he's only 24 and people are bringing his value down. This is a kid who hit 38 home runs at 22. So watch for that. Um, and stay away from players coming off injury. Everybody is so positive. Oh, he's better. He's fine. And I hope every player uh, you know, gets better and performs a hundred percent, but a lot of times it doesn't happen. So I'm not saying don't draft a player coming off injury. I'm saying don't pay a hundred percent of value to do that. If you can choose between a healthy player and a player rehabbing, take the healthy player. Um, and the last thing I would say is, um, if it went in doubt, get a pitcher that throws hard. There are, there are pitchers, there are Greg Maddox is always the example, but at the end of the day, somebody who can throw 95, 96, 97, is going to get away with more mistakes on the day they don't have their stuff. Then, um, you know, when Kyle Hendricks doesn't have his location, he's not going to be good. Do I like Hendricks as a pitcher? Yes. But if it's Hendricks or, you know, a guy like Cole who throws just, you know, so hard, I'm going Cole every time. And if you do need an acronym for the rules of engagement, I came up with AB Hit Push. I don't know if that's any help to you. Okay. <laughs> you can try yeah. it out. Push uh, getting more at bats. I like it. Push getting more at bats. Get hits. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Glenn Colton from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, from Fantasy Alarm, uh, Sporting News recently, and of course, a longtime successful fantasy player with his partner, Rick Wolf, the new Hall of Famer. Uh, and Glenn, uh, Steve Gardner said earlier that the depth among starting pitchers somewhat depressed the prices for the stats of the top guys. In the National League, uh, where, where you guys had your labor draft, uh, DeGrom's stats, I think, went for around 40 bucks as expected, but the subsequent pricing was pretty sedate. And you got Luis Castillo, as you mentioned, for uh, a reasonable $25 for his projected stats. How did you have those stats valued going in, and did they make Luis Castillo a target for your budget and plan? Uh, definitely, he was a target. We took a look at the second tier, which sounds like you're devaluing them, but the the non-degram tier, if you will. Um, and we said, all right, we want a guy at the right age. And the thing that we really like about Castillo is the combination of the age, the very high swinging strike rate, and the very high ground ball rate. So I'm not worried about the ballpark in Cincinnati 
given his substantial ground ball rate. And everything continues to be moving up for him. And we thought we could get him a little bit less expensively than certain other pitchers. Now, if he went too high, we'd have pivoted to a Nola, to a Bueller. Uh, we'd have been fine. But that was the guy we wanted. True to the smart system, you guys threw some darts at proto-closers, guys in closers in waiting, those kinds of guys. Anthony Bass and Yimi Garcia, you actually mentioned both of those guys earlier. Again, were these targets from your plan, or were they targets of opportunity that arose because of the way things unfolded at the table? Yeah, I mean, the plan was one closer we can count on to get saves. I think we got that in Kenley Jansen. There'll be Rolaids moments for us during the year with him. But at the end of the day, we think he'll get his saves. And then the budget was to spend, you know, let's say around $5 on a closer two. And that could have been a McGee and that could have been uh, an Anthony Bass or, you know, um, on and on, right? A Chris Martin, who's a closer to, or something like that. Um, it, he may or may not close, but he's got a shot at closing. Uh, so to us, it was, which one do we get first? And Anthony Bass was there. And, you know, once Yimmy Garcia was going to go for a dollar, we said, all right, we'll get them both. And if one of them loses the job, we'll, we'll release them and we'll still have the closer in Miami. Your hit pitch split was higher than some others in your draft, about 190 for hitting, 70 for pitching. That's about 73% hitting when the trend is to move down to around 66%. I've seen some even lower in some experts' drafts this year. Given your focus on valuation and budget discipline, this seems like a strategic decision. Did you make it ahead of time? Our budget was to spend 190 on hitting and 70 on pitching, and we hit it right on the head. Uh, which we typically are within a dollar or two of, of that split that we set out before the beginning of the draft. You know, for us, it was um, once you get past the top flight starter, your your anchor, your your saves guy that you know you can count on, the rest of the strategy is just to cherry pick value in the pitching because there are so many question marks in pitching that I much rather uh, spend uh, on a guy's stats uh, $4 or $5 than $12, because I'm not sure the community is that good at making that differentiation. So why not move uh, the budget dollars, if you will, over to hitting where you can get, I think, a lot more certainty in what you are acquiring. Do you adjust your split calculation based on what you expect the league to be doing? Are you just looking, in other words, to be a little higher than everybody else? Or is 190 kind of a, a comfort zone where you are aware of the limitations and you're just going for that 190 number, even though you might end up outspending your opposition by, you know, four or five dollars per team rather than one or two? How do you calculate that or calibrate that might be a better way to put it? Yeah, we don't worry too much about what other people's splits are. We look at the team we want to construct, but we're cognizant of the fact that, well, if A or B happens, we may have to move uh, draft capital from you know one column to the other. Uh, usually we, we read it correctly and we, we get a general sense of the team we can construct with the budget that we've laid out. But I don't not really, I can't be too worried about the 11 other strategies in the end game. It becomes important where to go three instead of two, looking at what other people want to do. But, you know, 
when you look at, okay, I want a corner guys, two corner guys for 50. And do I think the corner guys are going to be bid up? I'm not that worried about that. I'll move the money to outfield and I'll still get my offense. Staying with the split for a second, when you're doing your player valuations and assessing their stats and putting a dollar figure onto those stats, as Larry Schechter does to three places of decimal or, or whatever it is, you, you guys set values on the player stats that you're looking at. Does that reflect your own 190-70 split or does it reflect what you expect the overall market to be doing because that would help you identify um, inefficiencies? Yeah, other than the you know, the scarce players where we say, all right, there are only two or three second basemen and we really want one of them, that type of thing. What we're doing is we're putting a range on a player, a player, let's say within a three or $4 range, because we don't think you can be so precise. I mean, Larry's been successful and, and, you know, kudos to Larry, but I think you can't be too, too precise about it. It is an imprecise world we're in and projecting player performance and player stats. But what we will do is we'll put values that we think we're willing to pay on every player. It's not the value we think they're worth. So by way of example, you know, you take an Aaron Judge, and if he stays healthy, if he's a $40 player, but there's a pretty good chance he's going to miss a third of the season. So we take a third off that. We're only willing to pay 26 or 27, and we know we'll never get him. Right. So we don't spend a lot of time talking about that. So we put our own value on it, not what we think the market will bear. And the other thing we do is we make a list of the targets, the players we really want within our budget lines. So if we say, um, you know, uh, the, the $25 corner guy, they'll, they're probably 15 guys we might l- label that are worth that generally, but there are five that we really want. And our goal is to get one of those five. How do you set the five out of the 15? We talk out every player, the risk factors, the upside, the downside, uh, the advanced metrics, the eye test, the soft data, and we just come up to targets. We've been, Rick and I have been doing this together for so long that it doesn't take that long for us to, to sort of say, okay. And then every now and again, we'll have a lengthy debate about a player. I mean, Michael Conforto is one of those guys. His, you know, He loves the Mets. So um, he ended up convincing me that con- we didn't get him, but there was a guy in our target list. Um, he convinced me on, on Shane Bieber. And you know, sometimes I convince him on players. And you know, one of the things about being partners is once you make a purchase of, of a player stats, that's your team's. It's not because you pushed them or I pushed them. It's our guy. You made a note uh, of the fact that for the first time I gathered in quite a while, you didn't spend $30 on any offensive player stats in your, uh, in your National League labor salary cap draft. But you did end up with six different hitters who were in the $20 range, including Ozzy Albies, you mentioned earlier, that second baseman, but Corey Seager, Eugenio Suarez, Chris Bryant, and Victor Robles. That's a pretty good haul for $152 worth of, of bids. Was that part of the strategy or was that just part of the market discipline that the smart system uh, imposes? Yeah, I think it was part of the discipline. I mean, it was a couple of things. One, we would have gone over 30 for Albies based on the the scarcity at second base, the scarcity of speed. He's not going to steal 50 bases, but he's going to help you in the category. And, you know, the T in smart stands for team, that's a very good offensive team. So that was a guy we would have gone higher on and we just happened to get him under 30. So, you know, that was part just luck uh, of the draw or market forces. But we thought the prices on Seager 
and Suarez and Victor Robles, given the dearth of speed, were were just too low to pass up. And because of the we, we budget in groupings, we can say, okay, um, instead of a 40 and a 20, we'll take, you know, two thirties, uh, that kind of thing. It allowed us to get those players. And as far as Rizzo and Bryant, we're a big believer in a couple of things. One in contract years. And two, if you listen to them talking, they really want to raise the Cubs back to where the Cubs have been the last few years. And I think they're both going to have very good years. And they're players who used to be $30 players that we got in the low twenties, low to mid twenties. So we're thrilled with that. Rebound guys, got to love those uh, last year's bums, as Gene McCaffrey calls them, or previous year's bums might be a bit more general a way to put it. I noticed you spent a reserve round slot to get Aaron Sanchez's stats. So what do you like about Aaron Sanchez's situation in 2021 after some difficult times for him? Well, I like a couple of things. This is going to be the first time he goes to a park that is pitcher-friendly in San Francisco. I mean, Houston, Toronto, um, you know, great places to see a game, but not a necessarily great pa- places for pitcher stats. Um, and Sanchez, rumors are, was hitting 97, 98 on the gun. This is a guy who is not that old. You got to be pretty healthy if you could hit 97 and 98. And San Francisco has had this tremendous success of, of restoring pitchers' careers. Uh, Kevin Gausman, Drew Smiley, among others. So as a first-round reserve pick who we can slot in and out, in labor, you can't do moves back and forth. If you want to take a guy out of your uh, active roster, you have to cut him unless he's a reserve pick like Sanchez was for us, which means we can pitch him at home, you know, and we can sit him in Colorado and we can really strategically move him around. So given the potential upside and the maneuverability, uh, that was we had the first overall pick and we, we took Sanchez. There's one part of that I don't understand, and that is Aaron Sanchez is a reserve guy. So if you activate him, you can re-reserve him back and forth as much as you like. But the first time you activate him, you have to cut somebody. Is that correct? Unless somebody goes on the disabled, uh, excuse me, the injured list, or um, gets sent to the minors. So labor is very restrictive. If you draft a player or fab a player, the only way you can take them out of your active roster is one of three ways. Injured list, in major league injured list. Uh, sent to the minors or cut, or they were an original reserve to begin with. So the reserve players, especially the pitchers, are very valuable because they're the only ones that you can stream. And that's something that perhaps uh, could be added to the smart list is know your league's rules and understand the implications of your league's rules as well. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton from SiriusXM Fantasy Alarm and uh, the partner of Rick Wolf, Hall of Famer. And uh, you, you guys also drafted the American League Labor Draft. Uh, your split was 192.68, so pretty much in line with your split uh, practices. But you did spend more than $30 on a couple of hitter slots, starting with Raphael Devers. What did you like there? Well, I mean, Devers is one of those players where he's still, you know, under 25 years old, has had substantial success in the major leagues, and people are devaluing him over one bad month in a pandemic season um, where he was without his manager, you know, Alex Cora, with whom he's very close. Now Cora is back. Devers is still young. He's still incredibly talented, still a good ballpark. Uh, in which to hit. And he's still going to go to Baltimore, Yankee Stadium, Dunedin, great places to hit. Um, So we thought this was high floor, high ceiling type of player. And we like that. 
Your other slot over 30 went to DJ LeMahieu of the Yankees. Did you give uh, LeMahieu a slight bump because he's got that multi-position eligibility? Oh, definitely. I mean, especially like we described in in labor where it's very restrictive about being able to take players out of your lineup with DJ LeMayu, who's eligible first, second, and third. That means if we want, if we have to replace a player, we, you know, anybody in the infield, pretty much, um, we can move LeMayu. He can go to middle, he can go to corner. Uh, and even during the actual draft, it proved to be very valuable because we ended up um, being able to roster both Ty France and Nicky Lopez, guys we were going to get every day at bats because we could move LeMayo out a second and into corner. So that proved to be very valuable. And we also wanted a batting average floor. With Devers and with LeMayo, it frees us up to, you know, take some more risks on guys who might not hit for a high average because we've got LeMayo is about as safe a player in the major leagues for a good average. Do you and Rick adjust your multi-position premium more for only leagues than you would for in mixed leagues, given the added flexibility of the free agent pool in in uh, the larger mixed leagues? I would, with the exception of best ball, where uh, you know position flexibility is enormously important. A couple of riskier slots uh, you picked up. Byron Buxton's stats, uh, there's some injury risk there, of course. Teoscar Hernandez has some risk as far as playing time, given the glut of hitters that they have in Toronto, especially in the outfield. Uh, how do you and Rick calibrate those risks into your valuation and your willingness to go the extra dollar on a bid or not to? Sure. Well, you know, they're very different scenarios. With with Buxton, you know, the rules of engagement that we talked about say don't pay full value for an injury-prone player. So we looked at Buxton and said, if he's going to be healthy all year, big if, I mean, this is a potential 30-30 guy, and he's probably worth, you know, 30 or more uh, roto dollars. So we can't pay for that. So let's assume he misses a third of the season, like we were talking about with Aaron Judge before, and we take the 30 down to, you know, about 22-23, and that's our value. The bidding stopped there, and we think we got a lot of upside. And even if he only plays half a season, he's still probably going to be 15-15, and we don't get hurt that bad, but we have major upside. With uh, with Teoscar, I agree with you, there's some playing time risk. I mean, the guy won the Silver Slugger Award, so you know you got to think he's going to play a lot. But we took a look, for example, at uh, Ariel Cohen's projections. He, he amalgamates projections from a lot of sources. And he only had him for 567 plate appearances, which you know takes, what, about 100, 120 away from a full-time player? And still had him at 31 homers and 11 steals. So if he loses 100 to 150 plate appearances, he's still going to outproduce the 19 by projection. And of course, if he plays all, does get all those extra 120 plate appearances, you're swimming in gravy. Exactly. And plus, we, we liked him more because we had LeMayu and we had Devers and we had Torres. So even if Teoscar hits 230, which he might, it doesn't hurt us as much because we have the protection. Speaking of risks, you guys took a shot at Yaziel Puig's stats for an endgame dollar. Uh, how did you come to throw this dart? He hasn't even got a team to play for. Yeah, well, he has to sign in the American League. If he signs in the National League, we have to cut him by rule. But this is another thing about the unique labor rules. Because Puig probably will not be on a major league roster um, on April 1st, we'll be allowed to move him to reserve. 
which will give us a spot that we can float and stream players through. So we picked up, for example, Marmalejos um, and Taylor Ward on reserve. We can move one of those guys in there, reserve them back because we've created a streaming spot. And if Puig signs in the American League, I mean, he could be worth 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 the way he, with his ability. So it's a huge upside play with a very minimal risk. Your smart plan anchor in the draft. We talked about Jose Barrios earlier, but what kind of stats are you expecting for an investment of 25 Roto dollars? You know, I'm pretty confident that, especially on a good team, he should get his wins. Um, Minnesota is going to be good again. Um, I expect an ERA under four, a whip under one, two, and, and over a strikeout per nine. And he's not going to be Gary Cole. He's not going to be Shane Bieber. But you give me a starter who's going to go out there, um, young, experienced, and get you know a fairly high number of starts compared to the pool, and give those three stats, that's an anchor. And you tossed your reliever dart, at least one of them, at uh, Jose Cisneros' stats. Tell us what you like about him. Well, I, I like the fact that it's a bullpen in flux. Um, you know, Brian Garcia is, is not a prototypical closer. Uh, Gregory Soto has, uh, you know, he's a lefty who throws hard, um, <clears throat> harder for lefties to become full-time closers, and he's certainly unproven. And Cisneros is a guy who, you know, Gets a lot of swing strikes, 15 swing strike last year. Uh, very high spin rate guy, throws hard, um, limits barrels, and that bullpen's open. So at a dollar, give me six saves and some strikeouts, and, and we've profited. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David, with Glenn Colton from Sirius XM Fantasy Alarm. And uh, as you know, Glenn, I always like to wrap up these discussions with some boons and banes. These are players you think will help their fantasy teams or possibly hurt them. Uh, let's start with some boons, guys you think will provide top value in the coming season in the American League. Who's a boon hitter for you? I already mentioned him, Patrick. It's Glaber Torres, um, you know, a guy who hit 38 home runs at, at, at 22 years of age. Um, he's 24 now. Great park, great lineup. Um, and the soft information is, it was very powerful. He, he didn't stay in shape over the break between spring training and summer camp and didn't really get into form until September and then into the playoffs. But this is a guy with a regular spring training. He's now in his, you know, uh, fourth year at 24 and probably would have been his fifth year if he didn't get hurt, uh, in triple a, this is just a huge growth stock that is going to have a huge year. I love those young players, boy. You're exactly right. Especially young with experience, rising. Can't beat that. Uh, in the National League, who's a boon hitter for you? I love Javi Baez. Um, again, we're talking about the feeling around the Cubs, and, and Javi Baez is in his free agent year. Um, it's a guy who's got all the ability in the world. <clears throat> and I think he was really, being the free swinger that he is, I think I buy into the idea that he was affected by the unavailability of in-game video. I think with a full year, a regular season, you know, playing for a contract with the video in uh, the friendly confines, um, I'm very bullish on Javi Baez. Nice rebound candidate for sure. Uh, in the uh, American League, who's a boon pitcher for you? I like Griffin Canning. Um, going a little deep here, this is a guy who has three pitches well, with a swing, swing strike over 12, um, I think that team is going to be good. 
and he looked very good in September. So this is this is a guy who I think people should not sleep on. And in the National League, who's a boon pitcher? Go going even deeper. Trevor Rogers in Miami. Velocity is way up. And if you go into the advanced metrics, check these out. On his slider, it's a 13 swing strike and a 55 ground ball with the boat's great numbers. And on the changeup, a 24 swinging strike and a 55 ground ball. This is a guy who's got the tools, pitches in a big park. They know how to develop pitchers there, as you know, shown by Alcantara and Hernandez and uh, you know, Pablo Lopez. So I like Trevor Rogers a lot. He was the guy I wanted to get um, for the dollar at the end in labor, and we did it. Glenn Colton's Boons, Glaber Torres of the Yankees, Javi Baez of Chicago, Griffin Canning of the Angels, Trevor Rogers of Miami. Uh, Glenn, let's move on to your Baines. These are players you think have a good chance of disappointing their fantasy managers this season. Again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter you think is a Bane? I'm going to go with Whit Merrifield. I mean, I understand the attraction and, you know, speed is is hard to come by, but um, there are many fantasy seasons that have been ruined by counting on speed from a player who's 32, 33 years old. Um, and Merrifield's a guy who, you know, the hard hit rate is low. Right? So, you know, the, the power, especially if you're um, thinking the ball might be deadened a little bit, could really disappear here. Um I don't think he's going to fall off the shelf. I just don't think he's going to return the, his stats are going to return the value that people are investing in those stats. In the National League, who's a Bane hitter? I'm going to go super controversial here, Patrick. Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, I think he's got all the talent in the world. If I was building a major league team, I would love to have him as the cornerstone. But this is a guy who has never played a full season in the major leagues. And he's going first overall in, in fantasy drafts. He's been the most expensive player off the board in fantasy drafts, despite having, again, never had a full season in the major leagues. I think between you know some inexperience and injury, he will be good, but he will not return the value people are investing in their fantasy leagues. He was my first overall pick in the Raz Slam event, but that's a best ball kind of thing. I've, I agreed with you on the risk. I was thinking about taking Mookie Betts and because I had uh, had Mookie Betts in an earlier regular draft. But I thought, you know, if he gets hurt, I, obviously you miss the stats. But if he doesn't, you get every good week. So I think best ball is a whole different uh, kettle of fish in that regard. Totally agree. No problem with him in best ball. Over to the mound, again, an American League pitcher who could be a Bane. Yeah, I hate to say this uh, because I know uh, they're your Blue Jays, but Hunjin Ryu, uh, I like the talent. But the last five years, he's only pitched 130 innings once. So what his, the draft capital it is to get him, I think is too high, given that the combination of the very short season last year and a checkered injury history, I think counting on Ryu to, um, you know, pitch 160, 170 innings when he's done it once in the last five years, even with regular uh, situation is, is asking too much. And I'd rather, you know, go for the guys who I think are more likely to give me more innings, given the draft capital it costs. Just for the record, I live an hour away from Toronto, but I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan. I have been pretty much my whole life. Uh, and finally, in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher for you? I'm going to go with Trevor Bauer here. Again, it's not that you don't think he's going to be good. It's the returning the draft capital it costs to get him. Seven of the last nine years, his ERA has been over four. Seven of the last nine years, his whip has been one, two, five or higher. And this is these are... Not stats that are, uh, you know, 
number one pitcher stats. The other two years were great, but that's two out of nine. And of course, the rules of engagement say don't invest full value in a player who's just gotten a huge contract in a new home. So for me, um, Bauer just costs too much in fantasy. Glenn Colton's Baines Whitmerfield of Kansas City, Fernando Tatis of San Diego, Hyunjin Ryu of Toronto, Trevor Bauer of the Dodgers. Uh, Glenn, this has been a slice. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Glenn Colton. Well, every Tuesday night on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, Colton the Wolfman, 10 to midnight Eastern. You'll also see uh, my week that was baseball column start up at the beginning of the year on fantasyalarm.com. Uh, and uh, of course, we'll... Uh, we're, we're doing a lot of work with rtsport.com. We're playing best balls every week with the listeners and with the people in the community there. So catch me in the chat room over there every week as well. I forgot to ask, are you a DFS guy? Not a lot of baseball DFS. Uh, my day job is uh, is very demanding and it's sort of hard to stay up on the last minute lineup changes and weather changes. Um, I enjoy it sometimes on the weekends, uh, but I play in about eight to 10 fantasy baseball season long leagues and that's enough action for me, if you will. Yeah, there you go. Glenn Colton, thanks very much for helping us out with this. It was very interesting and very informative and very entertaining, as I knew it would be. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you again soon. I look forward to it, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Glenn Colton is on the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM and writes for FantasyAlarm.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 13 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests on this Two Tout Tuesday edition, Steve Gardner from USA Today and Glenn Colton from the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM and FantasyAlarm.com. Steve is a great guy, knows his stuff, and he's loads of fun to talk with. Glenn is one of the sharpest fantasy managers in the business, a guy who has lots of important ideas about the game, and as well, just a terrific guest. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods. Check out if they'll let you leave a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast rolling. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another Friday News and Notes edition. Nick and Ray have the National and American League news. Rob Gordon, that's where I know that name from, has his minor league minute. Alex Becky has the frequent flyer and I'll have my extra innings comment. All coming up on Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Friday, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.